At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Hi, this is Dennis O'Hare, and before we begin this edition of The Political Breakfast, a quick note. Because of some technical issues, things will sound a little bit different at my end than they usually do, but we hope to have them fixed by the next episode. Thanks very much for listening and enjoy. Just as the COVID-19 pandemic shows its first signs of leveling off a bit in Georgia, a new, more contagious strain appears, and the race to get vaccinated becomes intense, along with the debate over whether the state can do more for its public health department. Meanwhile, a brand new Georgia congresswoman is getting some intense scrutiny. And we'll try to navigate all of that in this edition of The Political Breakfast. We hope you are safe and well. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson are back. Welcome, guys. Glad to be here. Thank you, Dennis. Well, Georgia's COVID-19 battle continues, and we are seeing drops in some of those awful numbers. But as WABE health reporter Sam Whitehead points out, the new White House task force report shows that Georgia is still among the worst states in the nation for new cases, test positivity, new hospitalizations, and new deaths. And there is now the threat of a new, more contagious, and it appears anyway, a deadlier strain of the virus from the UK. But the state public health department will not say, at least at this point, which Georgia counties and cities have cases of the UK strain. Brian, other states have done this. Isn't this one clear example of an area where the Kemp administration could easily improve its communication with the public on the pandemic? You know, at the end of the day, I don't think it matters all that much in the practical application of how people should respond to this. No matter what county you live in, no matter which strain is in your neighborhood, you should be taking the same precautions. Wear the mask and keep your distance and not go in big crowds. And in every iteration of this pandemic over the past 10 months, Whenever something new comes about, there's always a bit of lag time. The officials trying to figure out how to move forward, how they're going to handle it, and really try to get a handle on what they're even dealing with. And then over time, a process gets put into place. I would imagine that's going to be the case here. I would imagine that at some juncture, there'll be a, a bit of mega data where we can see where the problem spots are. But if you look at the front page of the paper on Thursday morning, they're saying that the country could have 90,000 more deaths coming up in fairly short order, certainly eye-popping, scary numbers. We are in a crisis point right now. And I know for me personally, 
I am not going out. I am not doing events and I'm trying to stay away from the Capitol as much as I possibly can. I hope that people just respond with personal responsibility. I don't think that the governor is intentionally trying to hold data away from counties and cities and in the public. But I do think I do want him to continue to communicate as regularly as possible. I know that there is a sense inside the State Department and maybe the governor's office that, you know, if we don't have anything really new to report, should we be doing another press conference? And I just would, you know, impress upon them that even if you don't have a lot of new information and even if you don't have a lot of answers to questions, to make sure that Georgians feel like he's being as transparent as he possibly can. Well, on that point, the governor this week, like governors around the nation, told citizens there just is not enough of the COVID-19 vaccine to go around, even as he's been urged by some school districts in the area to put teachers in the group that's eligible for first come for the vaccine. It'll be months before we have enough vaccine, he said. But also, it's not just a supply problem, is it, Brian? The state has only administered just over half the doses it has as we speak. So there's a state rollout problem, too, isn't there? You know, on the teacher issue, we keep getting told, trust the science, trust the science. Well, the CDC science is telling us that schools are not community spread locations. And I know that there is national attention on the fact that three teachers in Cobb County have tragically died. And certainly our hearts go out to them. I actually saw some friends on Facebook whose children had one of those teachers and were talking about how special and committed they were to education. Certainly that's something moving for all of us, but we don't know where the teachers contracted the uh, disease. The fact is most teachers are not going to be in the most vulnerable groups. And we've got to focus on those first. It's not to say that they're not frontline. It's not to say that they're not important. It's not to say that we don't care. We do. We care tremendously. They're an important part of our social ecosystem here. That's why it's so important that they're in the classroom with these students who've been falling behind for the last 10 months. We've got to focus limited resources. And right now, as the governor said, they are extremely limited on the most vulnerable groups and work our way back from there. Is it going as fast as the governor wants? No, of course not. Does there need to be a greater supply coming in? Absolutely. But I can tell you, I would imagine there is nothing the Kemp administration is focusing on more right now than making those wheels turn. I don't know that there's ever going to be a place in the short term where we're like, oh, everything's going great. No, that's going to take a little bit of time. No doubt about it. But I agree with Theron. For as long as you have some data like that, you know, we got half the vaccines administered, et cetera, that is the kind of stuff that the governor needs to keep communicating on, keep talking to Georgians, making us understand, helping us understand the system that is in place, what the goal is, and how we're going to get there. But real quickly, before I get to Theron, when it comes to the rollout part, the administration knew for a long time that vaccines would be showing up eventually, wasn't there time to plan the rollout a little better than this? We're getting there. Slowly but surely, but we're getting there. Well, I'll I'll pick up right there, Dennis. I think that is where, you know, you have to just be a little critical of the federal government and the state government. 
they knew that they had to administer these vaccines. Now, to be fair to the state, they thought they were probably going to get more, but we didn't. I, I think, you know, what you saw from the superintendents this week in Georgia calling for teachers to be, I guess, put in the 1A category, which is the most pressing category, you know, people who have been put in the top priority list, you know, particularly people over the age of 65 and caregivers and doctors and essential workers. I do think that teachers need to be, you know, sort of phased in as quickly as possible. Uh, but I'll tell you this, you know, this whole vaccine game in Georgia is really coming down to who you know. Uh, I was very fortunate this week to use uh, legally and ethically, Brian, some of my political connections to get my mother, my mother-in-law and my godmother their vaccine. But I'll just be really honest with you. Had I not known certain people in certain places, I would have probably been like most Georgians right now who have loved ones over the age of 65 who just really, really need this vaccine. And so the government is trying to do everything they can. But I mean, we just got to be honest on this podcast. A lot of it is kind of who do you know? And then also, how do you work the system? I can't tell you how many people in Georgia are so confused about the online process. And I don't want to call out any particular health department or any particular grocery store. But everyone has told me this week that it has been so complicated to follow the process that's required for people to set an appointment online to get their first vaccine shot. And so I think we've got to continue to improve technology that people can follow and get their appointment set. I do want to send a shout out to the folks at the DeKalb County Health Department who administered my vaccine because I'm over 65. And I just happened by sheer dumb luck finally to get into the queue after weeks and weeks and weeks of trying. It, it was kind of like hitting the lottery. But once I got there, the folks there uh, near Stonecrest Mall were great. And I just want to thank them. But let me come back to the superintendents for a moment, because Brian, you mentioned the three Cobb County teachers who have died recently of COVID. And there was a very dramatic moment at a Cobb County Board of Education meeting when one of the speakers called on the members of the board and the superintendent, some of whom were not wearing their masks, to put them on. And those who were unmasked did not. That was a dramatic moment. And as the critics said, this kind of shows that dichotomy between saying our teachers are on the front line, and then at least when it comes to some officials and the, and the superintendent, not even following up the precautions that the CDC and other health experts say you need to follow. Yeah, and I don't know the setup of the room. I don't know if they were distanced and all, all of that stuff. I'm sure there's video of that. That said, you know, in a public forum like that, inside with a crowd, I do think it's important to just send the signal that, yeah, you're modeling behavior here. Yeah, you're modeling behavior. And, 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 I, and I agree with that. And I do wish that they had put on their mask, that they, that they didn't need to be asked to put on their mask. Here's my plea. We see the finish line. Let's just buckle down and do these things that we need to do, send the right signals, particularly our leaders, and get us through this. We're almost there, but we've got tens of thousands of more deaths to come. It's almost a guarantee. And we can do something about it. We can help stop it. I just totally agree with Brian. I think, you know, look, I hear this in the community all the time. You know, a lot of folks 
feel like, you know, I have a lot of teachers tell me that they talk to some of their fellow teachers and they'll say, well, I've gotten it already. And so I can't get it again. So therefore I'm okay to go back to school or, you know, you, you don't really know unless people tell you if they're choosing not to wear their mask in a public place for whatever reason, they still got to be responsible and wear their mask. But I think that to have this public meeting and not lead by example by just simply wearing a mask at a time where you know that that's what is required of us to do to protect ourselves and protect others, I think was just a missed opportunity. We knew that certain school districts did communicate very early on that they wanted to go back to in-person learning. They had a phased approach with teachers, but clearly, I mean, things are just not where we want them to be. Um, I do think that these teachers deserve to be moved up as far as they can on the priority list, preferably to the 1A list, if it can be you know, administered, to make sure that we have confidence as parents, but also the parents who have you know kids who are in school, that these teachers have the vaccine, at least, at least the first shot of the vaccine working towards the second shot if they choose to go that route. But look, I mean, if everybody's on the 1A list, nobody's on the 1A list. And that is the issue. When you expand the net to include such a huge number of Georgians, which is what would be the case with teachers, you are going to crowd out the people like your mother-in-law and your mother and my parents and Dennis, (laughs) (laughs) who are in front of the line for them. There are many people in this society who are in places where they must be close to other people to do their jobs. You think about, you know, waiters in restaurants who are also inside. They probably have a a much greater chance of getting it, but we're not talking about putting them into the 1A. And again, I want to push back on this for a second because I'm not in any way saying that we should put any group over the other. However, I do think that we can prioritize teachers. And nothing against these restaurant workers you just talked about. Lord knows I depend on them. But I do think, Brian, you can put the teachers in a phased approach. You know, you can probably start with some of your older teachers, your more, you know, susceptible teachers to this deadly disease. I'm not saying you let all of them go in there, right? But the problem here is that you can't blame this on teachers wanting to get the vaccine. Blame it on the federal government and the state government. Had they done their job correctly, Brian, had they been prepared to administer the vaccines once they received them and had the federal government given them more vaccines in a more timely manner, we could have had a higher percentage of the people like my mother, my mother-in-law, and my my godmother have already gotten their vaccines. And so these teachers have been patiently waiting to get their vaccines. But I do think that at a time when we knew as a state that many school systems, particularly in Atlanta, we're going to go back to in-person learning at this point in time in January, it would have been good for them to communicate with them. And I, and I did, and I want to say this. I think the response from the governor's office, it was a little too snarky towards the superintendent. You know, I get you want to push back and I get that you want to make the case that, you know, you can't put everybody in 1A, but we got to get out of this sort of fighting and this tribalism, right? I mean, it, it, it just mirrored very similar to what we got a lot from the Trump administration. And I think that at the end of the day, you're dealing with children's lives. You're dealing with teachers' lives, who I think we all agree, being a teacher is one of the most noble jobs that one can have. And so, again, I think that you got to show some some sympathy to wanting to get back to in-person learning. But I do think you can put these teachers in in a phased approach. And then that way, you at least can say, you know what? I didn't just tell you no. 
I didn't just tell you I didn't have enough and I didn't come back to you with some snarky response and statement. I actually, you know, I'm going to do what I can to try to make sure that we phase them into the 1A category. I'm a little defensive because I'm a former communications director for a governor. And I understand the frustration when unrealistic demands are consistently put on you, even when you, in a non-snarky manner, explain the facts of the situation. I would say the Kemp administration is much better than I was in the Bill administration at not resorting to snark. <laughs> they seem to have a lot more reserve than I did. But I understand where they are. They're sitting here saying, we don't have the supply. It's not there. It's not a matter of us hoarding barrels in a closet and being, well, not you, not you, not you. We don't have it. That's the stark reality. But this is the difference, right? You ran your campaign and you you committed to your promise your first year in your gubernatorial, in your, in your administration to give teachers a portion of their pay raise. You've also committed this session that you're going to fulfill that promise and you're going to try to give them more money than the money that they deserve. All I'm saying is this is a, this is a key constituency group that the governor supports, right? That he campaigned on it. He's delivered two sessions in a row. I hope the third session, they're giving them a promise. Why push back at them? That's all I'm saying. And we get that you're out of it, but it's not their fault that you're out of the vaccines. How is that teacher's fault? All they're asking to do is that we want to go back in the classroom and be safe because we don't know how other people are living their lives when they're not in the classroom. And I just think that this was a a missed opportunity, which I think they will clean up. And I guarantee you, when the vaccines come in and when Governor Kemp can get them and all of his staff who listen to this podcast, I bet you the first thing they're going to do, they're going to get all those teachers in line to get these vaccines. I just think it was just a missed opportunity. That's all I'm saying. I mean, this is a constituency group that you supported. This is a constituency group that supports you. Why, why be snarky with them? Well, as you point out, Theron, uh, and as Governor Kemp's predecessors can tell you, the teachers are a very powerful, not only lobbying group, but influence group outside of the Capitol. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Want to follow up quickly on vaccines. One more point. Uh, In our last podcast, health reporter Sam Whitehead mentioned that the Trump administration had been considering one way of deciding which states would get how much of the vaccine as it becomes available. And that method was states that were getting more of their allocated share into people's arms would get more in the future. And Georgia was not doing well by that measure. And I asked Sam this week whether there's been word on whether the new Biden administration would use that standard. He said it did not come up in this week's White House task force call. So the question of whether Georgia might be affected by that still appears to be in limbo. Just wanted to follow up with that. But let's pick up on something else we talked about in our last two episodes. I'm going to come back to it again. State funding for public health. As we noted last week, there's practically no additional funding in the governor's budget this year for public health in the middle of a pandemic. The public health department is strapped in normal years. Well, this week, our WABE colleague, Emma Hurt, had a chance to ask Governor Kemp about whether this is the time to spend money to expand and revamp our public health department. And he said, not now, because the state's share of public health funding is actually quite small. The feds pick up most of the tab. And here's more of his thinking behind that in his own words. Here's what he said. 
The issue with doing the job at the Department of Public Health right now is not funding. Um, what we've got to look at, I think, post-pandemic is what worked good and what didn't work good and see how we need to move forward in the future. But I think there are things that we need to look at in the future, but you know, trying to do that right now in the middle of a legislative session, in the middle of the case counts that we've seen you know, in the post-holiday bump that's thankfully starting to waver now and go down as well as our hospitalizations and then trying to get this vaccine rolled out is not the time to, you know, completely overhaul a system. I think that's something we're going to need to look at going forward and we'll be committed to doing that. And by the way, you can check out the governor's full interview with Emma Hurt on our website, wabe.org. Brian, Atlanta Democratic State Senator Elena Parent was among the Democrats who went after the governor for his approach here, saying that this crisis is exactly the time to expand our public health infrastructure. She cited the shutdown of the COVID-19 data task force in August because it ran out of money. We still don't have, as we've kind of been talking about, a centralized vaccine scheduling system. And she says that's partly because of lack of funds. And she quoted Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey is saying we don't have the employees to run a centralized vaccine system. So how does the governor respond to that, the lack of extra state funds at a time when the rainy day fund is doing quite well and there should be credit for that? Well, you know, some of this is just even if we had the money, would we have the resources to implement it? Our infrastructure in public health is a little bit behind the times, no doubt about it. And that interview that Governor Kemp did with Emma, you know, he talked about the fact that the the lack of investment in the Department of Public Health goes back over previous generations, including some <laughs> that I was involved in. And I'm sure that's true. And I think what he's saying is we're performing triage here. We have X amount of resources in human resources, people who can execute this stuff. They are dealing with a emergency. We don't have the bandwidth to do all of this future planning because we got to do so much in the short term. And I get that. Even if you flooded the zone with a bunch of money, it doesn't mean that you would have the people there to to implement it. And it's not just Governor Kemp saying this in a vacuum. There were interviews this week with the House Appropriations Committee Chairman, uh, Terry England, who is a very experienced leader on budget issues. He's been in that perch for as long as I can remember more than 10 years. And he said the same thing. And look, this funding comes from the feds. It's not a matter of lack of funding. So it's, it's a bit of a false equation from what they're saying. Yeah. I listened to the, the governor's response to Emma and, and good job with Emma always are uh, really asking tough questions to our elected officials and wanting to hold them accountable. But what I heard Dennis was a commitment to do this later. You know, if you really listen to what the governor said, he did say that this was something that his predecessors you know, sort of didn't commit a lot of money to as well. But I did hear at the end of that response that there was a willingness to actually get in a room and have a conversation about it. Just don't do it during the legislative session. But I want to applaud Senator Elena Parent, who is a dear friend who I've known for a long time for speaking up and speaking out. And she's been very, very active this session. And look, this is what Democrats are supposed to do, Dennis. I mean, this is the same thing that Republicans would do if they were in the minority. They would find an issue that is important to them and their caucus. And this is, to me, a bipartisan issue. I mean, I don't think Republicans are against improving our state health care systems, right, to try to get people 
more health care, particularly in rural areas. But I do think that the governor, he kind of left the door open to get to negotiations immediately after the session ends this year. And hopefully by the end of this year, we can actually uh, improve this health care system in Jordan. Brian, in our last podcast, and very quickly here, you said maybe this is something that can be negotiated even while the session is going on, that there could be trade-offs here that the governor could let the legislature have a win through negotiations on this. Is there any sign that that might actually happen? No, I think going back to Chairman England's comments, it didn't indicate that was the direction that they were going to go. But I do encourage legislators to find an area where they can get a win on policy. Maybe some of those who are specialists in public health and in healthcare policy can begin to lay the groundwork for the improvements that we need to make moving forward. You know, one thing about crises is that that's when, when it comes to light where we have had a lack of investment, where we weren't prepared. Obviously, we've seen some things here that need to get fixed, particularly the website issues and and having you know that sort of infrastructure built up and improved. That's something we need to do. And you know, we don't want to overcorrect and build up a you know invest in a bunch of staff that come at huge cost to taxpayers that are going to be much less needed after we have herd immunity. So, but don't we already have problems in public health that have gone? unaddressed for a long time that would certainly occupy the staff after the pandemic. Maternal mortality, for instance, just to name one. Yes, but those those are not one-off issues. Those are long-term, major things to address and require significant investment if you're going to tackle all of those at once. And look, we're addressing some of those things in other ways already. The General Assembly did lead on maternal mortality. It's something that you're seeing bipartisan support for. They, in recent years, lengthened the amount of time that new mothers can stay on Medicaid if they need that, because many of them who died after childbirth did so because they were afraid to go get health care support because they couldn't afford it. So that is one area where we are we are addressing you know, some of those issues. We've got the Medicaid waiver in place. Now it's going to ensure 50,000 more Georgians. Those are people who are going to be able to get doctor's care for their diabetes, for their heart disease. So the fact that there are problems out there, the fact that we are underfunded our public health system doesn't mean that we aren't, aren't addressing some of these major issues. Theron, we'll have to go very quickly on this, but with the Biden administration now running things and certainly invested in Obamacare as it was, Brian just mentioned Georgia's health care waiver plan, which was just approved by the feds. Will the Biden administration take another look at that and say to Georgia, no, you got to go back to the drawing board? Maybe, but I guarantee you this, health care and getting hold of this deadly pandemic and trying to get these vaccines to the state is going to be a top priority. You're not going to see this back and forth political attacks that we saw between the former president and the current governor at a time where Georgians need these two leaders to work together. I believe that getting that waiver approved is a step in the right direction. I've said that. Now, many of my Democratic friends disagree with me on that. They think that we should fully expand Medicaid in Georgia. I agree with that as well, but I do think that the waiver program is something I've 
applauded back when it was happening and when it happened and, and I applaud it going forward. So I think you're going to see the Biden administration really take a close look at Georgia to really figure out how they can you know, help, but also look at all funding sources. And they may tell us to go back to the drawing board or they may actually try to move with the path that we've set forward. But ultimately, I do think the communications between the White House and the governor's office is going to be good moving forward. And speaking of communications, there was a story from the New York Times about some behind-the-scenes communications involving the Justice Department and Georgia. We'll get to that and a lot more when the political breakfast continues. Stay right here. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we are back on The Political Breakfast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Dennis O'Hare with Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. Gentlemen, Georgia is at the center of a major story from the New York Times, which said that a Justice Department attorney, Jeffrey Clark, worked with then-President Donald Trump on a plan to get rid of acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen and then use the Justice Department to pressure state lawmakers here in Georgia to overturn our state's presidential election results. Brian, this came at a time when six Georgia members of the U.S. House voted to overturn the election results in that vote that took place hours after the attack on the Capitol. Doesn't the extent, if it's true, of the efforts by the Trump administration to interfere in Georgia really raise serious questions, not just about the past administration, but about whether lawmakers here at the state and federal level were somehow complicit. I have been very clear and, and strident in saying here on this platform that our election was not stolen, that we had a well-run election that accommodated a record number of Georgians, and not only that, accommodated them in a completely new way. So we should be proud. Instead, we're sitting here tearing down the House, and that's greatly unfortunate. Now, as far as the state legislators that had those hearings, yes, I totally agree. The accusations that were made in those hearings by these outsiders, people not from Georgia, largely coming in, have been debunked. And in fact, Rudy Giuliani is getting sued by the owner of our voter system for making libelous statements toward them, as, as are numerous other people. And to the tune of $1.3 billion. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's serious coin because, look, the charges made were so widespread. You had conservative media outlets out there echoing these things, and it really threatened to destroy the business of Dominion, the, the voter system maker, through no fault of their own. And now they are out there on the prowl. And a lot of those media outlets that made those charges have had to go back to cover their behinds and go, yeah, never mind. That's not true. <laughs> you know, uh, so, but as far as the culpability of the state lawmakers, look, let us not forget that the president of the United States was echoing many of these charges. And these legislators, some of whom may have believed the president, some of whom maybe didn't believe the president, but thought that the public needed to have a hearing, that they needed to show our leaders looking into it and addressing their concerns. So these legislators were responding to these demands from their constituents to just do something, do something. And I think that's what they were were doing here. But Um, they knew better. They knew better. They had access to the data. They had recounts. We had one count and then two recounts. They knew better. And isn't it incumbent on them to say, hey, look, guys, we may not like the results, but this is the result. And in order to keep this kind of fever from spreading in your constituents, you need to say, hey, look, this one we lost. Let's go back and fight another day. And look, let's give credit at this point, Dennis, to the Republican leaders in the state who did that. Brian Kemp, Jeff Duncan, some state senators like Chuck Huffstetler in Rome. And look, at the end of the day, the sunlight was the disinfectant here, right? The sunlight was there. They made their case. And the public at large, over time, decided there's no substance to these charges. Or, or I think at least a majority of Georgians came to that. You have stopped hearing, for example, that the Dominion systems don't work. I think we were saved by the fact that we had printed out ballots. That was crucial to restoring some public faith. When those two lined up, you began to hear fewer people saying, this Venezuelan company is changing votes. but. I think two months later, we are in a, in a better place. I think that there is more understanding that some of the conspiracies are dying down. But at that moment, what they were saying was widely held belief or at least widely held suspicion. <laughs> they knew better, Dennis. That's the perfect response. They knew better. And what's interesting to me is that now three years later, oh my God, look at how things turn around, Right. When Stacey Abrams lost her governor's race and when Democrats were bringing evidence of voter suppression, bringing evidence of voter irregularities, bringing evidence that we had problems with our voting machines, Republicans were basically saying, oh, don't you don't worry, you know, it, it's fine. The election was fair. There was no fraud. Right. And when they get beat in Georgia, which I've been saying on this podcast for many, many years that this day was coming and it's here now. Then, you know, they went with all of these false claims about that the election was stolen. And so you hit something that I think is very true, Dennis, that these state legislators were pressured from the federal government. And many of those state legislators are on the outs now. They're not even welcome in their own party. Their chairmanships were stripped away from them. They can't even, I mean, they're at the Capitol. They they, they have no influence. And, and so the thing was, is that, yeah, there were a lot of people here in Georgia 
that spread these conspiracy theories. And this this report shows that they were pressured to do so. And so ultimately what Democrats have got to do, which I'm going to do every single time I'm on this show, is talk about the good things. Talk about what we did right. Talk about how we won. Talk about how we are governing. Who cares about what the Republicans are doing? Brian should have a job in the Republican Party for a long time because he's got a lot of cleaning up to do. We did not threaten people. We did not, you know, have federal officials calling state officials and telling them they must go out here and push these baseless false claims. That was the difference. But and I got to say this: Republican Party nationally and here in Georgia, they're bullies. They're out of control. And what's happening is that I call on those Republicans, many of whom who text me, who want to talk to me privately. You need to speak up and speak out against this madness that's going on right now in the Republican Party. On that point, Theron, and shifting to Congress, Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene continues to make a lot of news. First, CNN unearthed more of her past social media posts and likes, including an endorsement of another person's comments supporting a bullet to the head of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And then a Facebook post from 2019 in which Green herself says of Pelosi, she's a traitor to our country. She's guilty of treason. It's a crime punishable by death. Those are her words. Now, Brian, back in 2019, House Republican leaders took away then Congressman Steve King's committee assignments after he made remarks that questioned why white supremacy is considered offensive. Those seem tame by comparison to some of the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said or endorsed. And Theron just mentioned what happened to some of the state lawmakers who went along with conspiracy theories. Yet when you look at House leadership on the federal side, other than a promise from Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy that he's going to talk to Marjorie Taylor Greene, at this point, there's nothing. This after what they did with Stephen King. Couldn't it be argued that this is a sign that Marjorie Taylor's wing of the party is now the party? <laughs> Golly, Moses, no, God. Dennis, Dennis, you, as to quote you, you know better. <laughs> there is an element of the base that loves what she says. And I've said that for the last year. I was raising the the flag last year. I was raising the alarm as that primary was going on. Talking well, you worked on the campaign of her primary opponent, Dr. John Cowan. That's right. And so that's why none of this is like, oh, my God, how shocking. But did you know about all of the posts that we're seeing now? I mean, talking about treason and punishable by death and so forth. I don't know that I saw that particular one. I did see the one of her following the survivor of Parkland, David Hogg, around the U.S. Capitol yelling at him and videoing that. I, I knew about that. We didn't do a deep dive on every social media post that she ever liked from her Facebook page, no. But she told us who she was. She didn't camouflage it. She didn't dress it up. You know, this is not like, oh, she's been exposed. This is who she is. And she was very transparent very authentic and genuine about it. But the question was about the House leadership now. How do they respond to this? And do they respond to it in the way they did with Steve King a couple of years ago? See, here's the thing, though. Here's the difference. And this is going to be an issue for the House Republican leadership, because, again, this is who she is. And she's not going to change her strikes. And in fact, she has an incentive to continue 
to have this kind of rhetoric and this kind of showmanship, because that's really what it is. That's really what her talent is. I mean, she's really good at doing this kind of video stuff and uh, making people interested in what she's saying. And look, the left has these people too, who also have this social media presence that gives yeah, them an outside I'll have, to, I'll have to jump in there because I got crucified on Twitter and, and I got to push back on you, Brian. I don't think we have, because I did get criticized, I mean, I got criticized for not pushing back on you last week when you compared Marjorie Green to AOC. There is no Marjorie Green Taylor in the Democratic Party. No one. No one is putting that stuff out like she is. So I have to push back on that. You cannot compare your Republican Congresswoman to anybody in the Democratic Party. No one. Well, to be fair here, I think, Brian, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were drawing a comparison in terms of what the leadership has to deal with when they're talking about more extreme wings of their party on policy. I think what Theron is talking about is behavior. There is nothing from AOC that is anywhere near like what we're hearing from Marjorie Taylor Greene in terms of rhetoric and threats. Sure. Let's let's take her out of it. Let me take you to the video of Maxine Waters telling a crowd to violently confront Republicans and get in their faces. Uh, Let me take you to the statement from uh, uh, Obama's uh, attorney general who said, when they go low, we you know, kneecap them or whatever that, whatever. No, that yeah, when they go low, we go high. No, that's a, that's Michelle Obama. There were other Democrats that the different turn on that. And look, but we were all talking about doing voting. If you want, it was all around voting. Brian, this is where I had to disagree with you, brother. Y'all going to have to own this woman. She is the face of your Republican Party now. There's no, no one. And to say Barack Obama, who, by the way, was the most ethical president we've ever had no no nobody went to jail no corruption so to say that he i mean this is the nice i work for him he is the nicest man to probably ever be president like and then to hit maxine waters maxine waters is well only fighting bad because trump literally made it a, a, a point to like embarrass her he called her all types of names and this is not just a black woman congressman this is the woman who chairs the finance committee in the house of representatives you, you cannot come on this show and compare Marjorie Taylor Greene to anyone in the Democratic Party. No one. I mean, look, uh, she is the chairman, and which is she's a much more powerful person than Marjorie Taylor Greene. And she called for violent confrontations of Republicans. It's on video and, and it's inappropriate. Any calls for violence against the political opposition, I'm against. I'm against it with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Where I get my back up, Theron, and this isn't just me, this is I think much more so across the, the Republican Party, is. They look at the stuff that Marjorie Taylor Greene says, and they don't necessarily go, yeah, Joe Biden has committed impeachable offenses. I'm with her on that. Or, yes, you know, a bullet to the head is the only solution for Nancy Pelosi, literally. No, the outrage is probably tempered a little bit because they feel like we see Democrats making these extreme statements on Fox News, on Tucker and Hannity show. They show us this all the time. And the media doesn't care. The media doesn't put a focus on them like they're doing on Marjorie Taylor Greene. And whether you agree with that or not, whatever, but that is how Republicans, because I hear it all the time, they feel like there's a double standard. And so that's why they're much less likely to attack their own people or people in their party that they disagree with in the circular firing squad is because they think they're treated differently. And while it may not be a perfect parallel, there's a lot of truth to the double standard. There is a double standard. Green will continue to be the standard bearer 
for Trump Republicanism in Congress. Even well, with being gone. She's a racist. She's a xenophobe who has fully bought into these conspiracies, which was led by President Trump, which led to the insurrection that we saw a few weeks ago. And this is what the people of her district should expect. Nothing. She will not accomplish anything for the next two years except to serve as a booster to the far right and the hate and insanity that exists in the Republican Party. This is a problem, and Republicans are letting her get away with it, and they're scared of her, and they're scared of Trump. And if they don't speak up and speak out and continue to say what Brian is saying and call her out, then they're going to be right back in this situation again in two years, and they're going to lose. Brian, one more time, back to the Steve King comparison. Will there be pressure from within the GOP on Leader McCarthy to take some sort of action when it comes to committee assignments or something else within the party. One thing to keep in context here, and again, let me reiterate, I do not associate myself with those comments. I just can't believe anybody would engage in that kind of rhetoric. And I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, I'm against anything but as an incitement to violence because I love my country more than I love any party or ideology. One thing to keep in mind here as far as the position that, that Leader McCarthy is in, these comments were made before Marjorie Taylor Greene was elected to Congress by her constituents. And again, she told her constituents, she told her voters what she believed in. This is completely in line with the rhetoric that she used during the campaign. And they not only elected her, they elected her by wide margin. She is not the face of the party. That is what the the left is going to want to paint it at. That's another reason why I do get defensive. This is not the party. But is there a segment of the electorate that agrees with someone what she's saying? You know, absolutely. And the left has people on their base that think stuff that's far out there too. It's just part of something we all deal with. I think what, what the leaders have to do is address it if she says stuff as a member of Congress. You know, right now, I mean, she's done things like filing the articles of impeachment against Biden, but she's not out there inciting violence on social media as a member of Congress. So that, that's going to be where the leadership has to take action. But Republicans in Congress and in Georgia don't want to be constantly asked about her comments. So to Theron's point, you know, she does raise a challenge for the party because that sort of rhetoric might work in her district, but it is deadly in a statewide race in Georgia. And you know, people come about her having aspirations to run statewide. I just don't see there being any pathway to that. I mean, she might do okay in a primary, but I mean, mainstream candidates like David Perdue lost statewide in 2021. Uh, somebody like, like Marjorie Taylor Greene is not a statewide candidate. Turning to Atlanta, City Council President Felicia Moore announced that she is running for mayor, taking on incumbent mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who has already said she wants a second term. Crime is certain to be one issue. And Theron, we've noted before that some categories of violent crime are up not only here in Atlanta, but in many cities around the nation. Still, will the Atlanta's not alone argument be enough for Mayor Bottoms? Well, first and foremost, you know, I think Council President Felicia Moore getting in the race uh, is going to be very interesting. I mean, this is a councilwoman who's been on the council for a long time. She represented uh, District 9, and, and uh, many would say has been a, a good council president. Uh, and so it's no surprise that she has decided to run for mayor. You know, she's kind of been hinting at it, not just verbally, but kind of through her actions. You know, she's been sort of critical 
uh, of this administration. And so I think that she's going to be a formidable candidate. And I, I do think that if Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, it looks like she's definitely going to run again. I think she'll be prepared to compare her record to the council person's record. But in regards to crime, Dennis, it, it is up everywhere, right? But it is particularly up in the northern part of Atlanta, particularly Buckhead. And it's just that we've become, you know, sort of this area has become a social gathering spot, right? It's a place where a lot of people from out of town are here. If you look at what just happened, I think last week, where a, a gentleman was gunned down at 3 a.m. in the morning, not far from my home, uh, was not from here, right? But he came here to, for whatever reason, but I think he came here to maybe, you know, participate in a party or something, right? You know, look, APD is focused on this. I mean, you know, I'm talking to the major pretty regularly to do my part as a citizen of Buckhead. I don't think APD and the mayor are taking this lightly, but crime is going to be the number one discussion. It's going to be the litmus test it is going to be, you know, the thing that many voters will be voting on in their candidate for not just mayor, but also the city council seats. And so I believe the mayor is communicating now, Dennis. I hadn't heard many local reporters criticize her as much anymore about not doing local interviews. She's been doing more of those. She's done press conferences. She's released statements. So I think you see a woman who's prepared to enter into a reelection that I think she'll be prepared to answer a lot of the tough questions. But I think she'll have a really good plan going forward around public safety. You know, at this point in uh, Kasim Reed's first term, he had over a million dollars in the bank going into the election year. Mayor Bottoms has a tenth of that in her bank account. It, it makes you wonder if her heart's really in running for re-election. It's going to be a tough year. She should have the advantages of incumbency, but part of that is having a big war chest going into an election year. I mean, they've had three years to raise money, and it's obviously not been a priority and you know and i get it that's i i've worked for elected officials who hated fundraising and didn't want to do it nathan deal would rather be beaten with a chair than have to sit down and uh, ask for money so i get it but that's going to have to change dramatically and quickly if she's going to be competitive here because the crime issue is an opening and the fact that serious candidates are looking at this shows a vulnerability, or at least that they think that she is vulnerable. Otherwise, you wouldn't put your own career on the line to take on an incumbent. And look, Kasim Reed had almost no serious opposition in his reelect. He was reelected almost by acclamation. And same for some of the other previous mayors of Atlanta. They went into that second term with a lot of support in the city. And the fact that people see this as an opportunity shows that we could have a serious race on our hands. And that brings up a point because our elections for mayor are nonpartisan, which means you can get in and have a field as crowded as the one in the general election primary for Kelly Leffler's seat. That probably won't happen, at least in those kind of numbers. But Theron, really quickly here, do you expect we're going to see more candidates and a runoff probably being forced here, which would certainly not be great for the mayor. Yeah, I just want to respond to this thing about fundraising. I think the mayor will say this pretty soon, so I don't want to get ahead of her. I think the mayor uh, has shown, I mean, she raised $3 million for her campaign before, and Brian knows this, but I was the campaign manager for Cassine Reed in 2009. I did not run the real leg, but he did make a, you know, a bigger effort uh, to raise money. What he didn't have to go through, Brian, was a deadly pandemic. He didn't have to go through you know, some of the things that she had to do. I mean, can you imagine trying to raise money from her supporters right now? 
you know, at a time where, you know, folks are hurting. And so I think she probably made a, a conscious effort to begin her fundraising now um, with a lot of those folks. But I think that she will raise enough money to not only be competitive, I think she'll raise enough money to ultimately be victorious. But as far as it being nonpartisan, yeah, that's, that's very true. You've got to be able to build a coalition of voters in Atlanta races. I know a little something about that. I got two Super Bowl rings as far as winning marriage races in Atlanta. And so I will tell you this, though, and I've shared this with people who want to run for mayor. And there's not a whole lot of them out there. Brian wants us to believe that it's all these 10 people getting in line. You know, Felicia Moore, you got to give her credit. She's been kind of talking about it maybe privately for a while, but now she's decided to actually go do it. It's, it's really, really tough to go put your name on a dotted line to go run for mayor. And let me tell you this, when Felicia Moore starts calling people and asking them for money, are you really going to you know, give your money to a person who's running against any incumbent, but particularly an incumbent mayor? And so I think you know, I'll be really interested to see her fundraising numbers and I'll see how complimentary Brian will be of those numbers when it comes out here in a few months. But ultimately, I think there's got to be a new coalition of voters built in Atlanta. It can't be your traditional model. Uh, it's got to be bipartisan. It can't just be the south side or the north side or the east side. You've got to figure out how do you build this new coalition of voters to go out and vote for you. And I think that's going to be a challenge for everyone who's running, not only for mayor, but people who are running for re-election on school board and they're running for elections on the city council. Aaron, do you think we'll see a lot of candidates and therefore a runoff, which would extend the challenge to the mayor? You'll see probably one or two more people run. You know, look, let's just let's just call it out. Right. All right. So Felicia's there. Check. Right. Black woman running against a black woman. The white community, I'm sure, wants a white candidate. Right. So you're probably going to have a white candidate jump in the race. And then you're going to probably have an LGBTQ plus candidate uh, jump in because we know Atlanta is a city where we have a very, very influential uh, LGBTQ plus community, right? And so you'll probably see that. But I don't think you'll get over four, Dennis, really credible, formidable candidates who are raising the money, who are really putting together true campaigns. I mean, if you look back in 09, we had around four candidates. It was Lisa Borders, Mary Norwood, Kasim Reed, and Jesse Spikes. Fast forward to 2017, you have four candidates but I think a lot of those people, you probably have maybe like five or six who raised money, uh, who actually were, you know, really putting the effort. And then you ended up with a runoff again between Mary Norwood and Keisha Lance Bottles. And so I think you'll have four at the most five credible candidates who run. But ultimately, uh, we'll have to just wait and see who those people are to determine whether or not they'll go to a runoff. Yeah, I, I, I do hope that we can come to a point where we can get past all the identity politics that Theron was going through there. Let's just elect the mayor who can do a good job. It was not identity politics. Dennis asked me who I thought was going to run. And so it's not identity politics. I mean, just look at former mayor's races, right? You always have these type of candidates. Mary Norwood was uh, in 2009, the only white candidate in the race. And in 2017, you had Peter Amon who run, who may run again, who was like a pro-business guy. You had Kathy Willer, who was a friend of yours, Brian, a friend of mine, who was openly gay. So I'm not saying anything that hasn't happened. You've had an openly gay candidate. You've had a white candidate. You had a black female. So how is that identity politics? That's just me stating the obvious. You've had those categories, those those demographics represented in our, in our past marriage races. It just, it just is what it is. I, I am not questioning the legitimacy or the accuracy of what you were saying. 
And that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal. Theron Johnson is a Democratic strategist, a public affairs and government consultant, and most recently a senior advisor for the Biden-Georgia campaign. Thanks so much to you both. Have a great weekend, and please put me on the 1A list. Rest in peace, Hank Aaron. And you can follow us on Twitter. Brian is at Lord Tinsdale, that's T-I-N-S-D-A-L-E. Theron is at Theron Johnson, and I'm at D-E-N-I-S-O-H-A-Y-E-R. Our thanks to Kevin Rinker and Jess Mador for their production assistance. And if you like this show, please subscribe. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate us, too. That's a great way to make sure other people can find us. And check out the other great podcasts from WABE, the latest on the goings-on at the State Capitol on the Gold Dome Scramble with Lisa Rayham and the WABE reporters. Up-to-the-minute information on the coronavirus on Did You Wash Your Hands with Sam Whitehead. A deep dive into the politics and money in one corner of the gun debate. Lisa Hagan brings you no compromise. And then there's the new session of the Peabody Award-winning Buried Truths, Hank Klibanoff, on Earth's details about the murder of Ahmaud Arbery in Brunswick. And here on The Political Breakfast, we'll be right back in your feed and in your head soon with more nourishing political conversation. Be sure to join us. Have a great and a safe week. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL, Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.